ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I'm warning you in advance, I am still not in a good mood. I'm still waiting on network feedback, which no rush to them, like they've only had it for a few days, but like... Every day that passes, I'm stressing about it. It's not their fault. This is just insecure writership. I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit, but it's flaring and, you know, it's coming out in many other ways. So I'm kind of grumpy lately. There's a couple things I actually want to address. I'm going to use, I guess, better judgment here and wait until I'm in a more, I don't know, pleasant mood to address them because some of y'all are like listeners, readers are wildin'. Not quite sure who you think I am, but I'm not who you think I am. But I'm gonna hold off on addressing that. But, you know, I was like, am I really upset about this? Or like, am I insecure about other things going on? And so this is one thing that I feel like I have control over. And like, I could flip out because I can. And I was like, is that really like the person I want to be? Sometimes it is. I, um, I had an amazing interview recently. Can I tell you who it is? Yes, Tabitha Brown. I interviewed her for, unfortunately not for this podcast, but fortunately for a publication. I'm writing a story. I think I can say that much, but I got to watch what I say because obviously I can't scoop the publication. But I asked her about Wendy, which we covered when it happened. Wendy had some, some choice commentary about Tabitha announcing that she was retiring her husband and Tabitha had some choice and graceful commentary in return. And so I asked Tabitha and I was like, you know, I saw what she said. And then I saw the graceful way that you responded. And I'm not mad at how you responded, but you do know that folks wouldn't have been mad if you like, you know, met fire with fire. Can't tell you what her response was for that. I also asked her, I was like, you gave a very gracious response. I was like, was that your first thought? Because I can be very gracious sometimes in the way I respond, but it's usually not my first thought. My first thought is to flip out and go on like a profanity-laced rant. I get in the group chat and I'm like, what the fuck? And then people talk me off a ledge and then I have a public response that is more level-headed. And I was like, was that you? She gave a response. I will say this, after speaking to her, I didn't realize we were the same age. And I thought she was... And let me phrase this carefully because I don't want to sound like it's shady because it's not meant to be. I thought because of her demeanor, I thought because of her demeanor, she strikes me as very like mom energy. And she is a mother. But I know plenty of people who are my age and mothers who have like my energy, which I'm not saying it's the right energy. I'm not saying it's good energy. I'm not saying it's bad energy. I'm just saying that like, you know, she has a, a grace and a wisdom that I don't have. And I'm not actually sure that I want. I kind of like that I can be the graceful friend, but also the pop-off friend, ratchet and respectable. I spent very many years doing the respectable thing very publicly. And it did work for me. Let's not say that it didn't. But the way that I'm more comfortable is being a little bit of both. She's a really good interview. I can't wait for the story to come out. I'm actually excited about writing it. As I was driving home from her house yesterday, I had very much on my mind personally and also just thinking about shaping the story. It's been a while since I've written a feature. 
And I think my tone of writing and my approach to writing has very much changed. So I'm, I'm actually excited about like writing this story. And I don't know how. I mean, it's going to get done. I know what the deadline is. But I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get all this ish done. You want to hear a funny? Not really a funny. It's kind of like a, maybe I need to sleep more. I'm recording this on Tuesday at 1235 in the afternoon. I had to work all day yesterday, so I didn't get a chance to record the podcast. So here I am in the middle of Tuesday when it should already be up. But all day yesterday, I thought it was Labor Day, like the entire day. Somewhere around like 1136 last night, I was replaying the Tabitha interview and just listening to like the quotes that stand out. When I write now, I write the story straight out as a story, and then I go back in and add the quotes later. So listening to a story, essentially, and then retelling it, I'm naturally only going to include only the interesting parts and I'm going to formulate it in a way that is interesting to my audience in the sense of the reader. Just a little writing tip. It makes it way, way easier. It's essentially the 80-20 rule that you're taught in J school, but it took me like 20 years post J school to actually start utilizing. Go figure. Basic stuff always eludes me. Hard stuff, easy. The basic shit, I'd be like, what? But I was replaying the Tabitha interview and she said something about her plans for Labor Day. And I was like, wait, what? Today's Labor Day. And I was like, she must have misspoke. And then like I went and checked my phone and was like, oh shit, it's August. And Labor Day is next week. Fuck. And I was wondering too. I was like, why would they schedule the interview on Labor Day? Like, that's so weird. And then I looked at my contract and the story's actually due on Labor Day. So I was like, all right, I wasn't too far off. And I was like, yo, is this because I was on the Odyssey? There were a couple of times when I was on the Odyssey, like I would wake up. And I would have to think for a beat, like, what city am I in? That happened in Chicago. Because I'd been to, like, I'd been traveling for, like, 27 days. I came home for a week. And then I went to Chicago. My second day in Chicago, I woke up in the hotel room. And I didn't even get up, like, I didn't even sit up yet. But I just, like, woke up and I laid there for a minute. And I was like, where am I? Chicago. And then kept going. Same thing happened in Napa, too. And I was like, yeah, I might need to sit down for a minute. It's not scary. It's just like, it's just weird to wake up and like, be like, where am I? And be sober. <laughs> it's happened drunk before. Yeah. Oh, I saw this comment the other day and they were like, I really like her podcast, but she talks about herself too much. Um, you might as well just stop listening. <laughs> like the first 10 minutes of this podcast are always going to be like a recap of whatever I've been doing. Like since the last time we spoke, I just kind of feel like I have opinions about a lot of things. And especially for folks who are new to the podcast, like you should know like who you're listening to. Like you should know like who they are and what their perspective is, how they're filtering their information based on who they are and what their experiences are. I think that's actually really important. So you can like skip the first 15 minutes or you can not listen. I want this podcast to be an enjoyable experience for people who listen. And if you're not enjoying it, then by all means, like, please go find something that you enjoy. Don't waste your time here. I certainly wouldn't waste my time with, with you or, or any project that I wasn't enjoying. Which is a lie, because last week I talked about watching the whole thing of Beckett, and I knew from the first five minutes. I was like, this is some bullshit. And then sat there and was like, I'm trying to support Denzel's son. And he got to stop with that shit. John David Washington got one more movie before I'm just like, bruh, I don't trust your judgment anymore. Your father did not, you know, do what he did for like 50 years. We see Denzel's name on a movie. We know that's going to be some solid work. It's going to be a good story with rare exception. I think there might be one or two that I can't think of off the top of my head. We'd be like, bruh, you did this for the check, huh? Which is fine. You know, we just tell us in advance. 
You got your check by the time the film comes out. So we don't got to waste our checks on bad work. Just tell us. You know, this one's for the check, y'all. All right. Get your money, black man. Get your money. With John David Washington, like, bruh, you, I don't, I, I, I can't just keep watching films because you in them. Anyway, so it dawned on me re-listening to the tape of the interview. It's not Labor Day. And then I was trying to figure out. And I was like, how did you get that it was Labor Day in August? And then I realized because the world is like mostly open. So people are starting to travel to L.A. all the time again. I'd gotten used to like my friends from the East not being in town. It was four different friends who hit me up who said they were traveling from either New York or D.C. And were going to be in town this weekend. And I just assumed, I think... They was like, oh, it must be a three-day weekend because that's why everyone's coming to L.A. But as it would turn out, it was because D-Nice was hosting his club quarantine party at the Hollywood Bowl. I didn't go. I don't know why. I didn't get tickets initially because it sold out really quick. And I was like, oh, somebody will have a ticket. I'll just wait till closer to the event. And like a couple people called and was like, hey, I got an extra ticket to, you know, club quarantine. Do you want to go? And I was like, mm, I don't. I love D-Nice and I love club quarantine, but I just, I just didn't. Everybody and their mother was there, apparently, including like half the East Coast. Like a bunch of people were in town. And I was like, uh, I didn't even watch the live stream. I just, I just didn't. I don't know what that was about. I didn't do shit on Sunday. I stayed in the house all day. Oh, I was working. <sighs> Story of my life. Anyway, speaking of movies, we just talked about the Washingtons. Candyman. We talked about Candyman because I'm like obsessed with Yaya, who is not Candyman. He's a guy that goes looking for Candyman, which I was like, bruh. I was like, you don't remember what happened in the original film? Was that a good idea? It did over 20 million at the box office. It did 22 million. In fact, it was projected to only do 15. The end of August is typically, is typically the box office at its worst. So it has exceeded expectations. And in fact, Candyman is the number one movie in the country. It's also the first time a black woman has opened with a number one film. This black woman would be Nia DaCosta. She's the director of the film. So congratulations, Miss Nia DaCosta. That's a huge win. Universal did a survey of the audience goers because they were surprised. They were like, where all these people come from watching this film? They exceeded expectations. They expected that the film would attract black viewers because of Get Out and Us, which I was like, yeah, we do show up for films. We do like to see black people on the screen. But according to the studio, 37% of the audience was black, 30% was white, and 22% was Latino, 5% Asians. Which I was like, yeah, you make good films and everyone shows up. Yaya, his old beautiful self, he did a video on Instagram thanking the audience for showing up. I watched that video twice and like I saw his mouth was moving, but I hadn't bothered to put the volume on. He is beautiful. I don't know if he got like his teeth redone or he lost some weight or gained some weight. Like I always thought he was nice looking since he was like, you know, blue and naked on the Watchmen. They showed all of it, the front and the back. Equally beautiful, both sides. Well formed all the way around, head to toe. There are pictures on Google. Just, just Google Watchmen, blue man and click images. All, everything you'd like to see in all its glory, all the glory comes up. I mean, he looked amazing then. Like, I mean, he was a 10 then. But something's been going on. Like, that video yesterday, and he was fully clothed. Like, it was just, like, from the shoulders up. And I was like, Jesus. Gorgeous, gorgeous man. Do you remember that thread a while ago? I don't know if it was a thread. It was this tweet. This woman had made a list of, like, actors who were, like, medium ugly. 
And somehow, like, Yaya and um, Damson Idris both got on the list. And I was like, ma'am, your eyes are broke. That's more than just glasses. It's like, you got cataracts or, you know, you're going blind, like something. Like, you don't see that beauty? All that broad nose brownness? Girl, you cannot see. Them lips? That melanin? Girl, you need help. Your eyes are broke. I don't know, Yaya. I heard he keeps his clothes on for most part in this film. He gets down to his boxers, but then I heard it gets gory after that. I told you I bought a ticket, but I didn't go see the film. I will watch it when it goes to streaming so I can control the volume and the pacing so I don't get overwhelmed and scary. But I was like, I can't go see Candyman in theaters. I guess this is good black news. Kanye West dropped Donda, sort of. This It's a clusterfuck. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with this. Donda came out on Sunday morning. Albums are usually released on Tuesdays. Kanye makes gospel music now. So Sunday morning for a gospel album isn't really that crazy. I don't know if gospel albums have different release days than other albums. I saw the album came out Sunday morning and I didn't really think about it. But keep in mind... I also thought it was Labor Day weekend. So I don't have the best judgment here. Okay. So the album comes out. Kanye's like, I didn't release the album. Universal released it without my permission. What? I was like, did they just get tired? Like the rest of us with the date that keeps getting pushed back? Because this album, remind you, this album was supposed to come out at the end of July. I went to the Kanye listening July 22nd, Thursday. And the album was supposed to come out, if not that Friday, then the following Tuesday. But it was supposed to come out then. It's a month later. I guess Universal was like, look, we sick of this shit. And Universal didn't want that competition with the Drake album. Kanye and Drake got beef. Like, that's between them. Universal is Drake's label, like, twice removed. If it was two different labels, like, okay, I see the beef. But two artists on the same label competing, that makes no sense for the label. But Kanye wants what Kanye wants, and Universal was like, we want what we want. And we trump, evidently, because they leaked the album, according to Kanye. There's been a bunch of beef with this album. Chris Brown was supposed to be on the album. He wasn't included. Chris Brown's first reaction was to call Kanye a hoe, which is very Chris Brown of him. Soldier Boy was also supposed to be on the album. He wasn't included. Said something like, I'm tired of putting up with his shit, acting like he ain't crazy. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but he said he was going to release like a diss track to Kanye, which I was like, who cares? You're Soldier Boy. And not to say you haven't had an amazing contribution to music, but like your time is, you know, it's come and it could come again, but it's not right now. Maybe the diss track will be that thing for him. Oh, some back and forth with like the baby. And his manager, like the baby had submitted a verse, but his manager hadn't cleared it. So Kanye was holding the album until the baby's manager responded. Kanye wanted to hold the baby's verse because the baby said he would vote for him, which I was like, what? Okay, loyalty, I guess, to a homophobe. Really? Okay. And then he posted that the baby's manager hadn't responded. And then the baby's manager was like, I did respond. Like, in a timely fashion, WTF, why are you trying to throw me under the bus? So there's Jail 1 that has Jay-Z, and then now there's Jail 2, which just, like, showed up at some point. 
So now the baby's officially on the album. This is a mess. Or is it a great marketing plan? I mean, all day for like the last month or so, people have been talking about this album in a way that they probably wouldn't have if, you know, Kanye did the big listening party in Atlanta and they just dropped, and they just dropped the album the next day. Would it have been the same buzz? Probably not. It's much bigger with Kanye doing the listening party. The album doesn't come. Then it's where is the album? Oh, he's working on the album. Oh, he's living in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Okay. Oh, he's having another listening party. Now he's telling people what to wear to the listening party. Okay. He's ascending into quote and unquote heaven through the opening of the roof at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Okay, no, now he's having another listening party at Soldier's Field in Chicago. He built a house? Like, all of this has just been nonstop buzz. And then, like, the album finally drops. There's all this craziness that concerning what's going on with the album. And it's, like, Rocky rollout release, Chris Brown flipping out. Like, Chris Brown flipped out and called Kanye a hoe, but he did so to 91.7 million followers. I had to look that up and did a double take when I saw it. Chris Brown has 91.7 million followers? I knew Chris Brown was big. I don't think I realized Chris Brown was 91.7 million followers big. That's... Damn, Breezy. I had no idea. Wow. That said... Soldier Boy, same thing. Well, kind of. He has 6.5 million followers. But again, he flips on Kanye, but is also telling, you know, 6 million people that his album just came out. Between him and Chris Brown, that's almost 100 million people. Kanye has 8 million followers. And granted, followers aren't like the end-all, be-all of popularity, whatever. But it's a quick way to get a message out. So maybe it's a clusterfuck, but maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's quite intentional. It's working. I read yesterday the streams of the album were like number one across like all the major platforms. So I listened to the album when I was driving to Tab's house the other day, but I'm not comfortable reviewing it yet. Before I publicly review an album, I have to listen while I'm working out. And then also I have to have at least two listens in my car. So until I do that, I won't be able to say whether I like the album or not. I can say I like the production so far, but I can't give the album a proper review just yet. Damon Young, the quiet genius that he is, he's one of my favorite writers. He had many thoughts about the Kanye album. He shared it on his Facebook page. I don't think he'll mind if I read you some of his opinion since he did share. Um, but this is what Damon had to say. And he had a lot to say. Like it was a really long piece. But this is the piece that stood out to me because Kanye has a bunch of guests on this album. And Damon points out, he was like, it's almost like a mixtape. But three of his guests, the baby who we talked about, Chris Brown, who we talked about, and also Marilyn Manson. They're all people who have either had rape, domestic violence, sexual harassment, homophobia. They've all had charges or allegations about in that vein. And Kanye has gotten a lot of negative feedback for including them on the album. And so this was Damon's take on that. Damon writes, quote, I think he, Kanye, considers befriending Trump and including people like DaBaby, Chris Brown, and Marilyn Manson to be acts of radical empathy, 
which on paper is Christ-like behavior. I think people who've been around enough believers who ensconce themselves in spirituality, wielding their holiness as a sword and a shield to manipulate, can see through that shit. I think his performance of Christianity is genuine, though, which makes it more toxic. I think he thinks aligning himself with the worst men in the industry is the way forward. If they can be forgiven and included, anyone can. And by anyone, I mean, and he means, Kanye. I think it's a way of showing he's more authentically Christian than those who either forgive with conditions or don't forgive at all. Holier than thou and shit. But, and this is the important part, that's me saying that, not Damon. Damon says, but uncritical acceptance of unapologetic harm ain't Christianity. It's cosplay with all the fun accoutrements, the music, the clothes, the praise, the act of being forgiven without the work or the care. His empathy extends most aggressively to men who've done harm and not the people they've harmed, which is decidedly unchristian. But love is never any better than the lover. Christianity never any better than the Christian. Ooh, damn, I love the way his mind works. Jesus Christ, Damon. My bad, Lord. <laughs> I mean to take your name in vain. Damn, Damon. That's what I meant to say. Next topic. There's a new Spike Lee documentary on HBO. It's called NYC Epicenters 9-11 to 20-21 and a half. Now, I like Spike Lee documentaries. I like Spike Lee movies as well. Spike Lee movies can be hit or miss for me. Spike Lee documentaries are consistently on point for me. Like, I love a good Spike documentary. I know that he's going to go find black and brown people whose stories are often overlooked, and he's going to center them and tell us about their lives through their lens. And I very, very, very much appreciate that about Spike Lee. I saw the 9-11, and I I guess I just skipped over the dash to 2021 and a half, but I tuned in because I thought I was watching a documentary about 9-11. So I was like, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries about 9-11. I lived through 9-11. I lived five blocks from the World Trade Center. I was in grad school when the buildings fell. The only reason I wasn't standing outside from the park right across from it is because I ran out of film in my camera. It was before like everyone had a digital camera, before phones had cameras, even Blackberries. But I ran out of film in my camera and I ran back home to get another roll, roll of film. I've gone through three rolls of film. The World Trade Center is fucking burning outside my building. I ran back home to get more film and I was digging through the drawers and that's when the first building collapsed. And then the second building collapsed. And by the time I ran out to Broadway, like 30 minutes later, everything downtown was covered in this white, dust is not the right word, but white something. I ran back to where I had been standing, which was on Broadway. The park that I'm referring to is the park where they had Occupy Wall Street. The buildings obviously were gone. And then there was like white smoke everywhere and everyone outside, self-included, was covered in this white smoke. My crazy, like, in shock ass walked around outside for, I don't know, four, five, six hours, just like walking with my camera and a backpack full of film. But I say all that to say, I'd watched a bunch of documentaries about 9-11. Like, I lived through 9-11. I heard all the stories about 9-11. I know people whose friends or family died in 9-11. Like, I, I, I flipped out in public places about 9-11. I still have PTSD from that shit. There's so many more stories I could tell you about that day, that week, 
trying to get home. It's just, there was so much happening. I wrote about it at the time. I might post the essay this year in honor of 9-11. I used to do it every year and then I stopped for a while because, you know, it's been 20 years. Jesus. But I decided I was going to watch this Spike Lee documentary. And then as it would turn out, I mean, I guess at some point we'll get to 9-11. But I watched the first part and he very much means 9-11 to 2021 and a half. Because the first part of the documentary is two hours and it's about COVID and it's about George Floyd. And it's a lot about how New York handled COVID and when people found out and, and what they did. And then personal stories of like one of Spike Lee's, um, I think he's a camera operator. Remember that story with Cuomo in the nursing homes? The camera operator's mother was one of the victims of that whole nursing home scandal. And the scandal was if you're diagnosed with covid or they think you have COVID and you get sent to emergency and you're diagnosed there or you die there, it doesn't count as a nursing home death from COVID. So it downplayed the numbers of how bad off the nursing homes were doing. And a lot of these nursing homes are owned by big corporations and Cuomo gave essentially immunity to the corporations and saying like, you won't be sued for these COVID, for anything that happens during COVID. So it basically was encouraging the nursing home owners not to make full investments into caring for the elderly who were in their care or for the people that work there because they weren't going to get sued anyway. So like they didn't have to do the most to make sure everyone was safe. So Spike Lee's camera director is detailing the death of his mom, essentially. And it's really, really, really sad. But he talks to a lot of the nursing staff at hospitals, doctors who were at hospitals, especially in Brooklyn. A lot of those folks are black, brown, brown as in Latino and Indian. A lot of Asian folks as well. The essential workers, the people who were, you know, facing death daily was of melanin. Um, And so Spike Lee makes sure that makes sure that they are centered and their stories are centered in this narrative. And then towards the end of it, it goes into George Floyd, you know, which we all lived through as well, which happened in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. We're still dealing with like the aftermath of all of this. I mean, I don't even know if it's aftermath of COVID because Delta variant, like I'm waiting on the announcement that everything's about to be shut down again. Like that's just a matter of time. It's like watching all of it, what happened last year, essentially watching it as a documentary and like watching what we just lived through or are continuing to live through. I was like, oh, we all, and I said this before, but I was like, oh no, we're all fucked up. Like there's no way like you can live through like all the stuff that's being depicted and like be okay. And like, I feel like when people go back and look at this like 50 years from now, in the same way that I go to my parents and I I question everything, I'm like, what was it like? Like the day MLK died or like, what was, what was it like when like JFK died? Like I went to see, um, I went to see that Jackie movie with my mom. And it's a really, really good movie. I mean, it's like psychological thriller, but it's even though you know what's going to happen, like it's still wild watching it happen. That, but that's exactly my point. For me, it's like a recreation of this time period that I didn't live through. And it captures like the emotion and the craziness 
of like J- JFK's assassination. And I went with my mom, who obviously lived through it, and she just boo-hooed all through the movie. But she was like, I just remember the time. And she was like, everyone was so sad. She was like, I don't think you get, like, everyone kept dying. JFK was killed. Malcolm X was killed. And then Martin Luther King was killed. And then Bobby Kennedy was killed. So she was like, the four main people who were, like, most prominent, most public, like, about trying to, like, help black folks. And it wasn't even, like, really help black folks. It was just, like, leave black folks alone. Like, give them their rights and then leave us the fuck alone. They killed everybody who was just like, all right, let these people be. And she was like, it was just so much death, like, so much death, just, like, back to back to back. And she was like, in that film, and she was like, the film really captured it. And I was like, Jesus. Me watching that, thinking like, yo, this shit is crazy. I feel like that's how this next generation, and not like the Gen Ys, because they're living through it with us, but these like one and two year olds now who are just coming up, they're going to grow up and be like 20 something and be like, what the fuck was that? The same way we look at Vietnam. What the fuck was that? Afghanistan? Y'all couldn't do no better than that? Hopefully, History won't continue to repeat itself in 40-year cycles. I don't really have much hope for that. Let's try. Maybe. Recognize it this time, unlike last time. So but so the Spike Lee documentary is really, really good. So the Spike Lee documentary is really, really good. I don't understand why it's not getting a lot of press. The only press that I've seen about it is, I guess Spike Lee gives, he gave 30 minutes of time to the 9-11 uh, conspiracy theorists. And he's been raked over the coals for that. Um, Actually so bad that I read that he went in and took out those interviews. It was supposed to be in the final episode. I think it's four or five parts. But he took out those interviews, 30 minutes worth, in the last episode. Because folks were so upset about it. I I haven't seen that episode. I didn't get pressers of this. I just happened to actually read about the complaints about his conspiracy theory. And that's how I found out that there was... A new Spike Lee doc. And then I was like, oh, well, let me put it on and see what it's about. And it actually turned out to be really good. But other than that, I haven't seen like a lot of like promotion for it, which I'm like, thank you for making black shit. But can you also promote it so black people know about it? Like, I don't mind telling folks about it. But like, you know, I'm basically doing free mo- free promo. Can I get a check? HBO? Netflix? What else? Last but not least, I do also have the R. Kelly trial on my list to talk about. But I don't want to talk about it. Like, it's so, it's so disgusting. Today's Tuesday. So it's day nine of the sex trafficking trial that's taking place in Brooklyn Federal Court. The Root has been doing day-by-day updates, as has the Daily Beast and the YBF. Child, they started talking about, like, herpes and, like, a woman had to smear feces over herself and eat it. Somebody else got beat with a size 12 Air Force One forced abortions he forced this girl to get an abortion because he told her he wanted her to keep her body tight and she was young so she believed it she didn't realize he didn't want evidence of him having sex with an underage child and then have to pay child support to her 16 year old boy who began having sexual encounters with him when he was underage like just terrible shit the shit he did to Aaliyah. They're talking about he raped a girl two days after that sham marriage with Aaliyah. 
And that's just from two different articles. That's one from the Daily Beast and one from The Root. I, I was like, I can't read this shit. Like, I feel, I feel like sick. I feel like a disgusting person for even like consuming that content. So, I mean, so that's why I haven't talked about the R. Kelly trial. We could try again next week, but mm-mm. I, I don't, I don't know if that's going to work. And good news, bad news. I don't know what kind of news this is. The Hollywood Reporter is reporting that Mike Richards, this is more Jeopardy bullshit. I'm just like, how long is this saga going to go? This is a C storyline in America's season finale. And I was like, this Jeopardy one is just dragging out. Um, Mike Richards is out, is the executive producer of Jeopardy. Mike Richards, the executive producer who then made himself the host of the show. And then people found out that he was a bigot and a sexist. I guess Bigot covers sexist too, though, doesn't it? Either way, he was a dick. And so he stepped down as host of Jeopardy, but he was still executive producer. But that is no longer the case. The executive vice president of business and strategy for Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, she sent a message to the show's crew earlier this week. She says, quote, I'm writing to let you know that Mike will no longer be serving as EP of Wheel and Jeopardy, effective immediately. We had hoped that when Mike stepped down from the host position at Jeopardy, it would have minimized the disruption and internal difficulties we have all experienced these last few weeks. That clearly has not happened. So Mike Richards is out. He's no longer host, obviously. He's no longer executive producer, obviously. That's a clusterfuck. It's up there with the Kanye album. I would say they'll get it together, but will they? Because this has been dragging out forever. I don't know who's going to host Jeopardy. Some someday they'll have a host. At some point they got to start filming a season because I think Mike did one episode and then he stepped down. So they ain't got no episodes. They're gonna just run reruns. Alex Trebek been dead since November 2020. Y'all can't find nobody decent to replace this man. Nobody that you think fits. They said Levar Burton didn't fit after almost a year. Come on, y'all. You could do better than this Jeopardy. Y'all are trashing an iconic brand. Jeopardy had much respect. Before this debacle. And y'all just, y'all are, y'all are killing your brand, people. You're killing your brand. Fix this. That's it for this week, y'all. Thank you, as always, for listening. Especially those of you who are not writing in with fucking complaints every week. Jesus. We will talk again on Friday. Okay, now. Bye. Bye.